up, my name's Ben, and you're listening to file 29 of the YYY files. This file belongs to someone who's actually been over to the dark side in search of their sports and employment. We can forgive him though, as his work in academia means that he knows more about the history of Stoke City than most. He has also, of course, been on the Stoke City roller coaster from the stands with us, and I'm excited to hear about it all, to be honest. Martin Cook, how are you, mate? I'm very well, thank you, Ben. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. Like I say, I'm I'm really excited for this one because, like we hear on most of these stories, this one again is is absolutely going to be unique. And I know that you've got a lot of knowledge anyway that a lot of people won't have had coming on this podcast, and maybe won't again. So uh, yeah, I'm 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 really looking forward to this. Well, I'm, I'm delighted to be on Ben. To be honest with you, so I, I said to you before we started recording that you know I've been listening for a long time, and I, I think this is a great podcast. Oh, I think the wow. concept's amazing, so. I'm really grateful you've let me on, first of all, and, oh. uh, and hopefully people will find it interesting and entertaining, maybe. I absolutely think they will, and as I said to you before the show, and as I will always say, you guys are the ones that make this show, Like I, I just sit here and ask you questions, you guys are the interesting ones, and I couldn't do it without you, literally, so you've not got to be grateful for me for letting you on, I've got to be grateful to people like you who are giving up your time to talk to me, give their stories to other Stoke fans that are listening. So, yeah, I, I massively appreciate it. For those of you that don't know, the YYY files are Stoke City stories, and they're told by you. Without people like Martin, the files just couldn't be possible. That's why I'm asking for you to share your story too. If you want to appear on the show, like Martin, and create your file, head to the website and click Create Your File. That's the yyyfiles.com. We're on all social media, at the YYY files, or email the at mail.com. All those links are in the podcast description. So... Martin, mate, my first question, why, why, why are you a Stoke fan? And I want to know from the beginning. Where, where do you start, really? <laughs> like most people on the podcast, it's, it's my dad, really. Mm-hmm. I'm a Stoke fan because my dad was a Stoke fan, and he, he loves the club to bits, and it means an awful yeah. lot to him. Do you remember, like, why your dad or how your dad got you into it in the first place? Was it just taking you down to a game straight away? My dad had been a, a season ticket holder at the old Victoria ground. He'd always been a Stoke fan. Mm-hmm. But when I was six, seven, eight, um, took me down to a couple of games, and mm-hmm. I just wasn't interested. Yeah, I just had, didn't have an interest in football at all. He sort of asked me when I was seven or eight if I wanted to come along to a Stoke game with him one night, and I was like, "Oh no, I, I don't even want to come, Dad." And he was like, "Why?" And in that sort of ruthless way that kids are, I was just like, "Well, Stoke's a bit boring, really." Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but to, to be honest, I, I sort of fell in love with football of my own accord a little bit later on. Mm-hmm. When I was sort of nine-ish, all my friends were playing on a football team. Okay. I wanted to join in, basically. Mm-hmm. And then, just from that, I just naturally went back to my dad at one stage. and was like, well, can I start with the games again with you? <laughs> and, it, and it just sort of grew naturally from there. So it was my dad who was my influence, but it was also him sort of giving me my own space to decide myself. Okay, fair enough. Do you remember that first game? I I don't really. Mm. I saw memories very vaguely of, of sitting in the Britannia Stadium, surrounded mm. by empty seats and very cold weather, <laughs> um, which is probably why I found it boring. Yeah. But sort of my, my sort of early memories from sort of early 2000s onwards, I guess. Mm-hmm. That's when I started going more on a more regular basis. Mm-hmm. But I suppose it's, it's two big moments for me that made me fall in love with Stoke. Yeah. The first one is, is a strange one, but it was when we lost 8 0 Liverpool in the League Cup. Oh, well, well, okay. I think most people had quit after that point, but uh, okay, that's that's an interesting one. I think at the time we were in what was League One now, mm-hmm. so like the third tier, and that was like the Liverpool team of 
with Robbie Fowler, Murphy, Michael Owen, you know, sort of in the prime, basically. Mm. And they, I remember them coming down Liverpool, and obviously, sort of third division football wasn't brilliant in, in terms of standard, in terms of what I'm seeing. Mm. I just remember being blown away by this Liverpool team, yeah, of how they play and how they just sort of ripped us apart. Well, the big one for me was sort of in the last 10 minutes or so, I sort of still have this very vivid memory of Stoke fans sort of singing, singing Delilah quite defiantly, mm. even though 8-0 yeah. down. Yeah. I don't know what it was, but it just it just resonated with me. And it just mm-hmm. and that was sort of a moment where I was like, well, actually, football isn't so much about results on the pitch. It's about you know being part of something bigger. So, you know, that, that was a big moment for me, I think. And that's one of my earliest memories, really. That's a really good way of putting it, to be fair, because maybe a lot of people would have been converted to Liverpool fans after that point, after seeing that display. But I can completely understand what you mean. For a lot of people, when they fall in love with the club, when they're sort of not interested in football initially, it is the atmosphere, it's that extra element. I know it was with me. So when I went to my first game, I wasn't interested in football at all. Neither was my dad, really. I think I mentioned this before. But it was the atmosphere and the hairs on the back of my neck and being part of something else. I knew nothing about football. I didn't know any of the players. Hell, we lost 1-0 to Birmingham. It wasn't even a good game. But it was that similar feeling that you had of just, like, this noise, this this passion, I guess, is fantastic. Yeah, and, and, and that still resonates with me now, though, being part of the crowd and being part of something bigger more than I do in the game sometimes. Mm-hmm. That's why a lot of people love football. It's, it's just, there's nothing else like it in a way, is that even some sports can't replicate that feeling of, a last-minute goal or last day of the season, for example, some something that, that happens 100 miles away can mean that you, you win the title. And don't get me wrong, that, that, of course, will happen in other sports. But in football, like, <laughs> people laugh and cry over it. Yeah. And it, it's, it's interesting you mentioned the last goal thing as well because some of my second big memory, or my very biggest memories, was um, we played Oldham Athletic away at Boundary mm. Park. I think I found this game last night because I... I really remember it very vividly, and it was in yeah. 2001, and we won 2-1. We were 1-0 down at half-time, and I was literally in tears because I was so cold. Hail and snow, and I was absolutely frozen. Freezing, cold, wet, a thousand miles from home. Mm. Weird away ground, um, 1-0 down, playing awful. We scored in the last 10 minutes, I think. Mm-hmm. And I can still see him clear as day now, stooping in to head the goal in to win huh. it. And I'd, by the end of the game, I'd totally forgot about being cold. Yeah, time. yeah, exactly. You would have. <laughs> you might have been warmed up maybe by jumping up and down a fair few times, but yeah, yeah like you just lose every sense of inhibition, don't you? Still remember, you know, at the old boundary park, at the front of the way stand, it used to be a little bit below ground level. Mm-hmm. The first couple of those. And we're in the first couple of those right behind the goal that we scored in. You know, so Ricky Davidson was only you know, 10 yards away from me when he scored it. Mm-hmm. Um, but just that feeling of, scoring a last-minute goal, you know, I, I just walked away thinking, you know, this is what football's about, and, you know, this is what I want to do every Saturday now. Yeah, yeah. As I'm sure you'll know, though, it's it's not very often we seem to get last-minute goals anymore. Well, it doesn't seem to be at the moment. I mean, don't be wrong, I think this season in particular, we've had a couple of games that have just been, like, the emotions just been fantastic, one way or another, I guess. The season previous, the first in the championship, was dull by anyone's stretch of the imaginations on the whole. But I'm thinking of the Sheffield Wednesday game. I'm thinking of the whole game, the Barnsley game, Huddersfield game, for different reasons. Like, we've been so happy this season, and 
you're right, going back in time, like, I'm thinking it wasn't a last-minute goal, but in the FA Cup run against West Ham, and, and that goal going in from Higginbotham, just, you could feel the explosion of relief go around the stadium. For me, moments and goals like that, there's nothing really that replicates it in my life anyway. You know, that, those are the two big early memories for me. Mm. They're very sort of contrasting reasons. Yeah. But again, I think, like you said, it's all connected to that emotion of football, isn't it? Don't be wrong, stats and titles and wins can have a big effect on how people are interested in a football club, but in the first instance, usually, it's emotion. And without that, I mean, look at the situation we're in now. Football's come back, and to some extent anyway, in the Bundesliga, and, and we're like, well, people are saying it's it's absolutely not the same because the fans aren't there, and it's just because you can't you can't touch that moment in the same way. Like, yeah, with the Bundesliga at the moment, you're able to watch it on TV, but because there's nobody else there really watching it and enjoying it, you can't share that emotion with them. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure loads of people listening to yourself, you know, when we've scored at different points in different games, you've just jumped and hugged the person next to you, or oh, yeah. even if you don't even know who they are. And <laughs> it's just that emotion and the fact that you're all feeling that at the same time. It's just something special. I don't think you get that in any other sports, just because how their goals are in football, do you that's it isn't it like it's bizarre like how fast-paced football is compared to other sports and yet you'd say that basketball is a fast-paced sport but points are scored in that sport all the time a goal is so rare for such a fast-paced game because you can have so many near misses and so many chances and so many controversial decisions that like your emotions are everywhere one minute you're frustrated the next you're upset the next you're anxious the next you've scored a last minute winner it's jubilation yeah and, and basketball is a perfect example, isn't it? You know, we're two mm. reckon, 120 points a game. Whereas in football, you know, every goal pretty much is, is going to be important, isn't it? It's going to be vital. Yeah. It just makes football so special, doesn't it? I think so, and many people listening will definitely agree with me there. So, if we're talking about your era sort of starting out then, it sounds like 2001-ish was Icelandic sort of time for Stoke. Yeah, so I've been, I've been quite lucky, really, because... Mm. Throughout my sort of time following Stoke, we've been doing quite well. Yeah. <laughs> when, I, when I first started as a fan, with you know in the old Division Three, we're always pushing for promotion. Mm. Um, even in the Championship, you know, apart from the first couple of years where we struggled, after that mm. we were either stable or eventually pushing for promotion. Mm-hmm. And then obviously we've had the ten years in the Premier League as well. You know, it's it's not been a bad time for me to to be a Bastogue fan, let's put it that way. No, absolutely not. Like You've touched on all the sort of phases and eras of being a Stoke fan during your time there. What are your top memories, I guess, of that? I think there's so many, really. I mean, you mentioned the, so, the sort of first period with the Icelandic consortium. Mm. And, you know, I, I think they are some of my favourite memories, really. Football was a little bit different back then. And, you know, during my lifetime, football was modernised an awful lot. I know we'll talk about stadiums later on and how those have changed, but one of my favourite lasting memories is during that period, we used to go to away games, me and my dad, as often as we could, really. Mm. And and back in those days, there weren't sat-navs or GPSs or anything <sighs> like that. So some of your older listeners might be able to remember, but they used to publish in the programme, sort of a week before an away game, there used to be a page on directions, basically. Mm. Um, to get you from the Britannia Stadium to wherever the away ground was. Okay. It used to be like a list of 10 directions. So we used to go in the car. So Dad used to drive, and I used to be the navigator. 
Okay. I used to sit there with a, this little program in one hand, trying to work out the directions, and a road map in the other hand. How old were you at this point? I, I was like, it would have been 10, 11. So <laughs> I'd, Big responsibility to, then. Yeah, and to be honest, I, I don't think that my directions helped an awful lot. I think it's more... <laughs> I, I was thinking it was more my dad working off instincts and following road signs more than anything else. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I, I my favourite memories all time, really, is going to away matches with my dad mm. and, and just travelling the country out to different places and just following the club around. You know, that was a really special few years for me, I think. And although, you know, the Premier League 10 years was, was fantastic, there was something about the sort of real nature of football in the third division back then. Mm-hmm. Um, everything was a little bit more, a little bit more raw, a little less polished, if you like. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Those, those memories just—you just maybe fall in love with football and, and love the club, really. Well, well, I mean, as a few of you will know, we've recently started the uh, the Stokesy Heroes series, and um, one of those was James O'Connor, and that will sort of be a similar era to what you're describing. And like, he was one of the most technically powerful Stoke players, I guess, at the time. Well. He scored a lot of goals and did a lot for Stoke in his short time there. And he was only ever so young, so you don't think of what the other players that were like, that were seasoned professionals, that, that were out outshone by a young lad like that. Yeah, it was, it was a strange time, really, because obviously the, the Icelandic consortium were a little bit ahead of their time, really, in terms mm. of them being foreign owners wanting to buy a club to make a profit, basically. Mm. Uh, I think the general, the general idea was they were going to buy this little third division club, you know, get promoted in a couple of years, and then get into the Premier League within four or five years. Yeah. And sell it on for a massive profit. But I don't think at the time there were many foreign owners. Mm. And obviously we had um, good John Fordson and, and his manager, and he brought in this influx of sort of Scandinavian talent. Yeah. Like, you know, Ricky Addison, Bernard Gunnison, Bjarni, his son, played on the wing. See a guy, Stanuk, who I think was being mentioned yes. while I was before. Yeah. People like that. So it was a mixture of sort of foreign talent with then people like James O'Connor, who was a sort of academy lad, mm. people like Graham Kavanagh, Pisa Fawn. It was a really interesting team. And I think we've yeah. had a big back then in terms of that sort of composition of, of foreign talent and, and more sort of British based players. Was that what it was? Was it just a bit more fun down there? Like. Everything seems to be a, like a little bit less predictable. You said that the owners were sort of there to make money at the end of the day, but but Stoke were doing all right. You know, as you said, they were pushing for promotion, auto glass trophies. Eventually, they did get promoted and they were into the championship. And yeah, just a weird time on the whole, right? Yeah, it wasn't bad. I mean, it always helps when you're winning and you're near the top of the league. Yes, but you know, I'm sure people will resonate when they say that. It was very frustrating because we were getting close. I think it was two or three years on the bounce we got in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. I think it, you know the first two years we, we fell short. So it, we were very much a near near miss kind of team. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we actually went and did it, I mean, when we when we did do it, we did it in the Millennium Stadium, didn't we? We sort of built the South Stand Jinx and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So we, even then we did it in sort of unorthodox, unorthodox exciting fashion. Yeah. It was just the nature of travelling around the country, and you know, those are mm. my first sort of formative memories of, of following Stoke. And you know, more, and more often than not, we, we won, but we also were prone to lapses. Oh yeah, well it's Stoke at the end of the day, isn't it? We're, <laughs> yeah, we're always prone to the lapse. Yeah, I mean, me and my dad, you know, we we go as often as we can away from home, and we have season tickets at home. 
Mm. One of the only times, I think it's the only time, we've ever walked out of the game early was during that period. Okay. And we were playing Wigan Athletic away. If I remember rightly, if we won that day, we would go top. Mm. And we all knew by going to the game. We were 5-1 down, basically. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> and he was absolutely gutting. And I remember Dad just being, being fuming about it. Yeah. We walked out and we walked to the, to the car park and we scored a sick for Wigan did. Oh. I remember walking away. So even though there were good times, there were moments in there which sort of brought me back down to earth. And you know, as a young lad, it gave me a... A, a taste of some of the uh, the more negative aspects, shall we say? Mm, well, that's it. I guess you got eased into football somewhat, and then taught the harsh truths a little bit later on. But having said that, as you mentioned, we we went through even better times than that. We eventually did get promoted from the Championship to the Premier League, and then FA Cups and European football followed. And and well, what times they were! Like I said, when I started following, we were going places like Oldham, Gillingham places which weren't great and all of a sudden we're going to be playing with the good boys and I'm, I'm so glad for, for people like my dad really and people of his generation mm. who, had, who had the chance you know my dad's and people of his health will have followed Stoke through those lower divisions for 10, 20, 30 years mm-hmm. you know, so I'm glad for them more than anybody else that we had about 10 years in the Premier League and, I, and I'm hopeful that one day we'll, we'll get back there at some stage I'm sure we will I think we're a club that always tries to push there or we do seem to be now anyway under the owners and management we have and it may well take a stroke of luck again who knows like where do things have happened in football we might not make it for 20 years we might make it next year like given the time that we're in at the moment i mean anything can happen right any top memories from those days in the top flight <laughs> i remember going to the first game at bolton away <laughs> and i just remember sitting there thinking oh god this is going to be a long a long nine months or so <laughs> You know, and I remember after that game, I think it was, was it Paddy Power that paid out on his being relegated? Mm, and yeah, but that that first season was just such a roller coaster. And that first game, sort of being battered three 0 at half time, to the Villa game straight afterwards where we won three two. Mm. It was just continuing roller coaster emotions all the way through. I remember we went down to to Anfield away, and it was the first time really I'd, I'd gone to, you know, one of those sort of Premier League stadiums like one of the big boys. Mm. And it was a boiling hot day, and we, we ground out a nil-nil draw. I don't think we had a shot on target. And we just sat in and defended for 90 minutes. And it was <laughs> it was quite heroic, really. Yeah. Um, I remember celebrating that like we won, won the league after the four times. <laughs> but no, just a chance to do a place like that and to mix it with the big boys initially was, was amazing. But then obviously, as, as time went on, we, we sort of developed into a, you know, one, one of the better sort of second level of clubs if you like in that division didn't we oh yeah exactly like we started out as this underdog and don't be wrong i think that stoke always been best as an underdog and it's why it mattered to us like a lot of teams wouldn't be happy with that but but we were because we didn't put a lot of pressure on ourselves eventually we started doing well with fa cups and european football as i mentioned <laughs> even stoke alone and things like that and yeah and we gradually gain more expectations for the club. We were trying to push Europe for, for league position. It was good times. Yeah. And it, I mean, it, if you remember the first two or three seasons, we were very much the sort of underdogs, weren't we? Mm. Um, I remember in that first season, it was just sort of sheer willpower, I think, from the club and the mm-hmm. plays and the crowd as well. I and mean, the atmosphere back in those first two or three seasons was incredible, really. Oh, yeah. 
you mentioned atmosphere when you were growing up and and like well <laughs> surely tenfold now right yeah absolutely i mean when we beat man city at home james beat scored a winner it might be one nil i think we went down to 10 men didn't we mm. you know and I, I'll, I'll still remain convinced of the day i die that he was a crowd that won the game that day yeah it was just such a hostile place after the red card and the noise and the volume it was it was incredible you know i'm, I'm so fortunate to have experienced that i think we were so different as well weren't we you sort of look at the top flight now and everyone sort of plays the same way, don't they? Mm. Very much play off in the back, play for the thirds, possession-based football. You know, back then, we were we were quite direct, very reliant on wingers, reliant on a bit of inspiration from Fuller, had the long throws, the atmosphere. Mm. We, we were a little bit of a throwback, weren't we, initially? Yeah, absolutely. Like We were the team that broke the mould, and I've always said that teams do better with some sort of identity or individual playing style. We eventually fell apart when we joined the bus of a 3-5-2, I think. <laughs> There's a reason why we did so well in that initial period, and that's because we stuck to our roots. We stuck to what we were good at. We didn't have to rewrite ourselves to fit football. We had our own effect on football. That's when our identity was strongest for me, anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with that entirely. The sort of the transition to the sort of Stoke alone, if you like, it was always necessary to sort of go down that route. Mm. We, we kind of lost a little bit of that underdog spirit and that little bit of togetherness, I think, eventually. Yeah, I think so. Again, we've talked about this a lot, but we talked about how the more that Mark Hughes was getting the team that he wanted, we were losing the foundations of what Tony Pulis set down. And don't get me wrong, Tony Pulis's time had to come to an end at some point, and Mark Hughes was doing wonderful things, but Tony Pulis laid down something of which Mark Hughes could build his platform on. And then when Mark Hughes started taking away them foundations... He had nothing to fall back on when is you can't outscore every team every time, unfortunately. That perfect blend that we have of a really tough, hard to beat defence and then an attack which would cause all sorts of problems for many different reasons. We very much became a very much a top heavy team. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Well having said that, you know, I I still appreciate both Tony Pulis and Mark Hughes for what they did, yeah. but in very yeah. different ways. I think it was the right time for Pulis to leave. I think mm. It was all a little bit stale. Yeah. It was moving in a slightly different direction in terms of possession and technical players. And in the end, Hughes gave us, you know, statistically, probably two or three of the best years we've had. Yeah. It's accumulated in, in positions. But, you know, he, whereas Pulis did have that rigid defensive mindset, Hughes almost went too far the other direction, didn't he? And I appreciate both of them for what they did. I think, I think it is possible to appreciate both Pulis and Hughes for what they mm. did but also to be critical at the same time of downfalls or their limitations as well. That's a very level-headed way of putting it, I think. And and I suppose doing what you do as well, you're, you're sort of level-headed in what you do. For anyone that doesn't know, you've got a history in sport and academia in sport and Stoke history, and, and it's a long story. <laughs> and I know it sort of starts with you at university pretty much and then moving on to as i said in the intro the dark side so do you want to sort of take us through that journey yeah so so after college i went to university and did an undergrad degree in sports coaching development Mm -hmm. Uh, i went to the masters in sports coaching after that Um, and my initial sort of idea was to to be a a football coach as a career Mm. during that period and after that i went to work for the dark side I went and worked to Port Vale for five, six years. <sighs> initially, <laughs> initially so as, a, as a community coach, working in schools, then as a sport development officer, 
but in the end I did a little bit in the academy as well and obviously I've mentioned my dad and my mum and my dad's a huge Stoke fan and there was a stage when I had had to come home with I think it was 15 or 16 Port Vale strips to wash and uh, I remember all these Port Vale tops were hung up down the washing line in the back of the garden (laughs) I remember my dad walking in and he was horrified his friends didn't kick you out at that point (laughs) (laughs) I know I know but yeah, some really good memories of sort of being there and being involved in a professional club. Obviously, at the time, you know, Stoke were t- sort of pushing promotion and then in the Premier League. So it, the rivalry wasn't really there anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand that. But like, when you were growing up, were you sort of taught and you understood the the Vale rivalry? Yeah, absolutely. And I I hated the, the derby matches mm. um, because they were... I can't remember winning a derby match. Yeah. We kept drawing or losing to Vale constantly when we were in that sort of third tier. And I remember always dreading going to school the next day because mm-hmm. there would be somebody's giving me some stick. <laughs> you know, so I totally understood and still understand the rivalry if it's there. When I was a kid growing up, it was a lot more... The, the distance between the two clubs mm. was a lot shorter and smaller back then. Well, exactly. Like, we were literally in different leagues like we, yeah. we were so far apart at that time like you know we were doing so well Vale not doing quite so well what was the biggest thing you learned from your time at Vale um what a great question man um hmm. I think one of the big things was just how normal footballers are mm. um, and that they are professional players are just normal people yeah um you know through some of my work we have sort of players visiting our sessions or you bump into them in the corridors or whatever and they were they were just all very genuine nice guys and blokes yeah i think sometimes people get the wrong impression about modern footballers and mm-hmm. um, well certainly during my time at Vale, the, the players and the staff they were, they were amazing and they're always happy to talk to you they always said hi i don't know if you've ever been to Vale park but their training pitches the first team are, are next to the ground literally so during my, my dinner hours i used to go and start, sit on the bank and okay. What's the first from train? Okay. So it, it was just a really unique, nice experience to be around professional football, where you know there was a lot of access to see what was going on and access to players and different people. Did the players and the staff know that you were a Stoke fan and they ripped into you for it, or were they completely oblivious? Uh, there weren't many Vale fans who were working behind the scenes. Mm. A lot of them were, you know, I was a Stoke fan. There was an Everton fan I used to work with. My boss used to be a Man United fan. Well, I think that's the same wherever you go. Probably talk about this later, but I helped to teach on the course we run in Manchester City. Mm. You know, and lots of the staff that work in Manchester City are, aren't necessarily Manchester City fans. But it's, it's nice because you know everyone throws around that bit of banter and that little bit of stick, don't they? So <laughs> it's, it's always nicer when you're on the winning side, I guess. Absolutely. I, I guess, like you say, you, you didn't have to deal with the Stoke v Vale rivalry because... There wasn't really one at that time. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we'll probably see proper derbies again in terms of like I saw when I was a kid. Mm. I think it's a long, long way back to Vale from where they are at the minute. Right. Uh, and I think with the Shanahan's in charge, we've got the right people in charge now. Mm-hmm. It would be a massive effort for them to get you know, two or three promotions to reach where we're at. Or vice versa, it will be a massive catastrophe if we, <laughs> if we fall to pieces and slip down the league. So, 
That's it. I guess it depends on how long the Coates family stay for us. I think that's that's been a massive thing for us and our success. And maybe if they leave, things can dramatically change. And I guess Port Vale's owners are relatively new still now. And you never know. They they may continue to look like they're going to get promoted anyway. They, they certainly looked a lot better this season from looking at them from afar I'm, I'm, not, I'm not 100% on that but you know the, there were talks at the start of the season when we were in the relegation zone in the championship that we were going to be playing each other next season and that's a <laughs> that's a that's a scary prospect from my point of view uh, I know well like oh, you said we are, we are very lucky to have the coach family involved mm. I, I don't think anyone will say they're perfect and they have made mistakes along the mm. way but I don't think anyone can question that they've got the best well of a club at heart they've got stoke in their hearts haven't they 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 want the best for the club oh 100 yeah we've seen that through this coronavirus pandemic like they, yeah. they've been fantastic from start to finish i think yeah and, and i think if you look around at clubs like portsmouth like charlton where owners don't have that connection necessarily to the club i, I do think we're very lucky to have them in charge and, and hopefully that sort of link will carry on for a long long time to come I hope so. I I really do hope so. It, well, either way, it's going to be a very sad day when Peter Coates either steps down and puts his puts his son completely in charge, or if the Coates family decide to sell up. I mean, who knows what's going to happen with financial fair play and whatever else have you throughout this period? Maybe they. I I don't know. I I I really don't know. It's 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 really odd at the moment. But uh, I guess that's not for us to think about right now. We can let the future dictate what happens to us. Yeah. But, but no, I, I had you know I had five six really good years there, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I can imagine that. Eventually, you did leave Vale, and you moved on to something new, right? Yeah. So after Port Vale, I spent a couple of years teaching PE in different prime schools. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I, I was sort of coaching grassroots football teams as well, mm-hmm. just sort of lads and dance stuff, um, nothing, nothing massive. And then sort of managed to fall into women's football a little bit. But then after that, I chance came up to go to Manchester Metropolitan University and be one of their sort of teaching staff in their sports department. Well, that's it. And 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 for me, this is a really interesting and unique bit about you. It, through this period, you've you've done a lot of work on Stoke City. Well, no, let's take it back a little bit. So, what is your role at MMU? Um, so I'm a GTA, which basically means that I am the rung below a lecturer, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's like a sort of trainee lecturer position, now, yes. Yeah. So I sort of deliver lectures, plan lectures, deliver seminars, do marking, do one-to-one support for students. So I, I do that as half of my contract, and then the other half is me doing research. Well, because of my sort of background and sort of coaching and sport development and stuff like that, um, you know, I, I teach, well, I deliver sort of units on sports, sports coaching, sport development, mm-hmm. as well as sort of history and sociology as well. So I'm, I'm sort of a mixed jack-of-all-trades master of none, I think I used to describe myself. Yeah, but I think that's really interesting how, like, you're able to use what you learned at university, presumably, and then again, your background as well. Because, like, from, from my experience, anyway, a lot of people who lecture and teach and, and work at universities don't actually have a lot of experience in the real world. Well, you definitely have. Yeah, and that was one of the main reasons they employed me initially, was because... Mm. A lot of the stuff that they wanted me to teach, I sort of experienced myself, sort of been in that sort of real-world environment for four or five, six years. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the sort of route, I think we said before we started recording, you know, I, I think sometimes we try and shoehorn people into careers too early. Yes. Uh, you, know, I, you know, we should let people find their own route. You know, it wouldn't be until you sort of 30s where you perhaps find a, 
this sort of one Ruto, one job that you want to have for the next 20, 30, 40 years. Oh, God, tell me about it. Like, I'm a designer, and, and who knows whether that'll be for the next two years, 20 years, 80 years. I don't know. I guess, I guess we'll find out. It's like, your 20s are a really weird time, I think, because you sort of learned a lot about who you are as a person, but not necessarily what you like, what you thrive at, what you're best at. And that, of course, is a lot of time where people leave university and they, and they go into jobs or further academia and, and other things like that. Yeah. I mean, if, if you told me that I'd, I'd be lecturing and doing a PhD in sort of sports history and sociology 10 years ago, I would have, I would have laughed. <laughs> but that, was, that was so far away from being what I thought I wanted to do initially. Mm. which is the coach but I, I think there's quite a lot of similarities between teach, teaching and coaching and lecturing I think there's lots of transferable skills in there but you know it, it took me a while to work out what I wanted to do and you know my ideas changed over time and I think that's the same for lots of people isn't it mm. oh yeah absolutely you mentioned the PhD so um, <laughs> some people listening to this podcast might not even know what a PhD is so do you want to sort of briefly explain what you're doing alongside your lecturing because i know what you're doing your phd on is is very very relevant yeah so so my phd is basically on the development of football in Staffordshire from the 19th century and early 20th century so it's sort of tracing how football emerged in silicon trends um how it became sort of a really central feature and so just sort of tracing the evolving how it evolved over time and so obviously within that Come sort of Stoke City and Port Vale and things like that. So, you know, I've got a real little interest in, you know, even in my work, I get to research about the history of Stoke City and, and look into that side of things. So, I'm quite lucky, really. And you can completely see why now. Like, I'm very excited to be able to have you on. Like, you have specialised in the birth and origins and early development of Stoke City Football Club, right? Yeah, that's, that's sort of a portion of my research. It was only, it's only sort of a small part. Mm. But it's obviously very relevant at the minute just because of the various different things that have happened last year or so with you know, Notts County being relegated and whatever. Mm. So yeah, so a, a big chunk of my research has been about sort of the origins of, of different clubs and obviously Stoke City falls within that remit. I've published a few papers about it and I've sort of watched them afar with, with interest really to see how lots of the discussions have gone on sort of in the mainstream media about it all. In that case, is there, is there anything maybe maybe an abstract or two from a couple of those papers? So, the, the long and short of Stoke's origins is that the club wasn't formed in 1863. Okay. Um, it was formed in 68. And during, in one of my papers, I talked about why that myth developed and why it still resonates. Mm-hmm. But sort of, the thing I try to emphasise is the date doesn't particularly matter. It's the problem with looking at our origins is, as if I asked you, Ben, for example, who founded the club, he founded Stoke City, you know, mm. would, would you know? No, I wouldn't. Well, I would not a clue. Exactly. And I don't think 99% of other people would. Yeah. You know, so for me, my, a lot of my research is not about saying, oh, you know, the, the date's wrong. A lot of my research is about the early people involved in the club mm-hmm. and who sort of shaped it during those early days. And and their stories are, are much more important to my mind than a year on a badge. You know, and I think it's a little bit sad in a way that people don't know who founded the club, and you don't know the kind of guys who sort of turned it into what it is today, and who played a really important role during that period. You know, so you know, a lot of talk, I mean, Crystal Palace came up the other day about being the oldest club and things like that. 
I, I don't see the relevance in that. The year doesn't matter necessarily. It's the mm. stories of the people involved which are more important. Do you know much about the stories of House Stoke development in that case? Yeah, so <laughs> it, it, it might be one for a later podcast because there's, there's loads to cover. Oh, I'm sure. But, you know, some of my stuff looks at Harry Ormond, who was the guy who founded the club. Mm. Looks at a guy called Thomas Charles Slaney, who basically turned the club from being sort of a recreational team. He basically transformed it into the biggest or one of the biggest clubs in the country. Mm. Um, and he also formed the Staffordshire Football Association as well. Harry Lockett, which a few people are a little bit more familiar with, you know, he was Stoke secretary, but he was also the, the secretary for the Football League in his first year. Mm. You know, so the Football League was basically based out of Hanley for the first year of its existence. Hmm. You know, so all, all of these little figures and these individuals, you know, we we don't hear about. You know, so that's sort of the best part of my my research. Really, is sort of shining the light on some of their stories if you like i was just gonna ask that actually so so is that is that the best thing about what you're doing is that you get to do a deep dive into something that well you said before nobody knows an awful lot about to be honest they think they know they think we were established in 1863 and and actually you're sort of able to dedicate yourself to learning all about it yeah it is it is nice and again it's, it's the individual stories which which fascinate me you know, so I, I've been very lucky that the guys at Wizards of Dribble let me publish a few different sort of articles with them, mm. sort of which focus on different sort of players from the past. So they did one on John Ritchie, one on Freddie Steele. Mm. You know, and I, I think these are these sort of players or these managers or coaches, whatever. You know, these are people that are really interesting. They play massive roles in the club's history. I hope people sort of enjoy reading some of this stuff. And, and for many people, you know, we get to sort of resonate and they get to think back to what they remember seeing you know so it, it is the stories and like i say being sort of throw myself into this is is a, is a big bonus i guess the way i see it is that you're doing exactly what i'm doing now but you're doing it from 150 years ago like you're you're doing these deep dives into the stories of these personalities that got the football club going and maybe some of these players that that sort of flew under the radar like obviously the likes of sir stanley matthews gordon banks even people like jimmy greenhoff are very popular and legendary stoke players but is there any stoke players that stick out to you that sort of fly under the radar and don't get as much recognition as they need to yeah so Sort of in the 70s, you know, you mentioned there, Jimmy Greenhoff. So that era was characterised by the Greenhoffs and the Hudsons and the John Ritchies. Mm. But Eric Steeles was, is our sort of club record holder for appearances. Mm. You know, he's a fascinating character. And, you know, for someone who played nearly 700 games for the club, <sighs> he, he's he's often overlooked a little bit because he was in a team for Gordon Banksies and, you know, and that ilk. You know, so he, he's overlooked a little bit. I think there's a guy called Freddie Steele mm. who played during the Second World War. Yeah. And he he scored more goals for the club than anybody else. Mm. Um, but because a lot of them came during the war, they weren't classed as official goals. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was basically one of the best strikers in the country at the time. Mm. He picked up an injury in one of the seasons and he had a crisis of confidence. So when he was in his early 20s, he almost retired. He, he literally came out and said, I'm going to retire now, I'm done. <laughs> and he was only through like a, I think it was described as basically hypnotism. He was basically given a course of hypnotism to try and sort of resolve his confidence issues. 
which was very bizarre back then, very sort of unique and novel. Mm. And he had a couple of sessions, and then he scored, I think it was 10 goals in eight games afterwards. Cool. And then he went on to score loads of goals after that as well. You know, wow. so all, all of these stories are really fascinating to me. Like, have you got any others? Like, I mean, I'm sure you do. Something that just we have n- no idea about Stoke City that, that happened. There's a, there's a couple of little, little snippets which are interesting. I don't know. I think hopefully most Stoke fans saw this, but the other day, in on Google, on the homepage, mm. they have like a different sort of figure or, or event, don't they? For yes. A different day. It's like, is it a doodle or something? Do they call it? Yeah, it's Google Doodle, isn't it? Something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So, so Frank Sue was on there the other day, mm. and I did... I did my undergraduate dissertation on it on him. Okay. Ten ten years ago, something like that now. Um, but basically, he he was the first man of Chinese descent to play in the football league. Okay. Um, but it was also the first player of colour to represent England. Oh wow! Again, because he played he played nine games for England during the war, mm. Second World War. But the FA don't count wartime games as being official. Oh. Count them as friendlies. Yeah. He's an amazing figure, and lots of Stoke fans of a certain age sort of recall stories of him. But he was an amazing player, and you know his contribution sort of is overlooked a little bit. So it was it was great to see him popping up on Google Doodle the other day. Yeah, and and Susan Gardner um, has written a book about him, like a biography. So mm. she did some amazing work. Well, he's a, he's a fascinating figure. But <laughs> one of the the funny funny moments I think Stoke were involved in the the most boring game in football history. <laughs> so sort of in the early 1900s, when the football league went to two different divisions, obviously they had to introduce promotion and allegation. So the way they initially did it was around Robin. So the bottom two teams from the first division played the bottom two teams from the second division. Mm. They played three games, teams, two teams the most points stay up or go down, basically. Mm-hmm. Which worked fine for a couple of years until, until Stoke got involved. And basically, we we played. We had to play Burnley at home in the final round robin game. And before the game kicked off, the two sets of players sort of realised that if they drew nil nil, it didn't matter what happened in the other game. Yeah, it was, it was Newcastle against somebody else. I can't recall. No. Mm. So they, they worked out if they drew nil nil, they both teams would definitely be promoted. Okay. So you can see where this is going now. Can't yes. You? So basically, there wasn't a single shot in 90 minutes. Oh my god! And if the ball, there was a few moments when the ball went into the crowd, and the crowd <laughs> had sort of picked up what was going on. Yeah. So to stay entertained, the crowd would, would keep the ball and not let the players have it back. Oh what? Uh, and there's sort, of, there's sort of one newspaper report that talked about a fan just chucking the ball over the back of a stand into the River Trent. <laughs> but basically, it, it goes down as. It's sort of the most boring game in history. Well, yeah, defined that way because, like, literally nothing happened and they didn't want anything to happen. Yeah. So it, it was never sort of proven or disproven if it was sort of fixed or not, or whether that just both teams had sort of realised that actually, if they're not trying, then we don't need to try and everyone will be fine. I was just going to ask that. So, like, like, did nobody catch on? Did Stoke not get in trouble for this? Like, what? Wh- I guess it's very hard to prove intention i guess like many people could argue that we yeah. played out with some nil nils in the past before think of the binary season yeah yeah so so we, we got a lot of criticism in the press and things like that mm. but nothing could actually be proven in the end nothing actually came out but the year after was 
that's the reason why now we have automatic promotion and relegation, mm. and we have the playoffs in the format they are now. Yeah. So rather than round robin, we do something like a knockout sort of phase, don't we? Mm-hmm. And, and the reason we do that is because Stoke and Burnley played out this this dying nil nil draw where nobody wanted to win. Wow. So so we sort of sort of defined how football works then in that sense in the English leagues anyway. Yeah. I mean, there, there was an occurrence as well where. I think it's we are sort of partly responsible for the players being sent off as well and for red cards being introduced. Okay. There was there's lots of things going on in sort of the early nineteen hundreds where, you know, if you fouled a player and you were last man, it was just a foul basically kind of thing. Mm. People weren't sent off necessarily. Mm. <laughs> basically and we played Notts County in the FA Cup game and the Notts County defender blocked it on the line with his hand. So we got a penalty but he wasn't sent off. Right. So, so in Tickleston fashion, we missed the penalty, obviously, <laughs> and we and we ended up losing the replay in the end. Okay. But again, that's that's another sort of one of those little moments where that led to sort of red cards being introduced properly. Oh, okay. You know, so there's loads of little nuggets like that where actually we had quite a big influence on on different aspects of, of football in this country. If we're talking about football more broadly, then I'm not saying that Stoke triggered any more of these events, but like. We talk about football being different from, well, you said, from when you were growing up as a Stoke fan in the Icelandic era to these days. Like, how different was football when Stoke were formed? Like, it, it was a, literally a completely different ball game, right? Yeah, I think sometimes we, we look at football now and we just assume that's how it's always been. Yeah. Um, but football, sort of when Stoke were initially formed, was very different. Um, it wasn't until the sort of late 18. 18- 70s, early 1880s, but you know, clubs started to, you know, attract sizable crowds. If that makes sense. And one of my favourite little stories is it's not a, a game Stoke were involved in necessarily. It was um, a game between two local teams in Stoke. It was one-one. One of the strikers had broken through the defensive line mm-hmm. and we didn't score basically. So the, so the goalkeeper of the defending team just picked up the goalposts because they were just two sticks with tape across the top. So in, in the report, he picked up the goalposts, put them together, and just walked off. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> you know, so, so so football back then, you know, is it was still in its formative stages, if that makes sense. And there's just lots of silly little stories like that. I'm not a massive history buff, to be fair, because like history to me is the study of things that have already happened. But this, it's just completely interesting how the game of football that we know it now is is just completely different. And I know that's exactly the point of history, explaining how life was completely different back then to how it is now. But like, it's something that we're watching every week. And you're right, we take it for granted in a way. And it's taken a long, long time for us to be able to develop into the game of football we know it now. We talk about video assistant referee and how we're not happy with that after its first season like back in those days it sounds like football was you know not perfect for decades yeah i mean the, the thing is as well ben is that you know you're speaking about history being stuff that's happened in the past but you know yesterday's history technically yes you know so a lot of my stuff as well looks at sort of 70s and 80s as well mm-hmm. you know I, I do think that there are lots of interesting stories that come out of, of sports history especially mm-hmm and I think one of the things that makes me a little bit sad is that Stoke, I don't feel like we, we promote our heritage enough, necessarily. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mentioned sort of the, the most boring game and the, you know, our rolling red cards being introduced. And, you know, we did all these amazing things and I don't feel like we share that enough, necessarily. Yeah, that's a good point. 
sort of very quickly on this. We talk about Stoke's values all the time of being underdogs and and more than the sum of the parts and a representation of the area. I think you're probably best placed to answer this. Has that always been the case? Or it, if not, when did that sort of start coming about? Yeah, so one of my main sort of bits of my research is, is looking at why football is so important in this region, in Stoke-on-Trent. Mm. Because, our, you know, it is central to our, our identity now. You know, cricket, we have, we've never had a first-class cricket club, necessarily, mm. national reputation. We've never had a rugby club of, of national repute either. You know, horse racing we used to have, but that ended in the 1850s. Mm. We have athletics an awful lot, underpinning. But again, that's, that's sort of secondary to football all the time and always has been. You know, so football is very much at the forefront of, of our identity as a region. Mm. It's one of the things I argue. And I think that's even more so now. A lot of our identity used to be about the pottery industry and that sort of stuff. But obviously in the sort of seventies, eighties, nineties, that sort of is faded away now. So I think now, you know, football is, is a key part of our identity. And it's always been a key part of it as well. It's nice to know that it's not just a recent development that fans have only just found this out because we've been successful to some degree over the last 40, 50 years or so. It's nice that it does really stretch back to the roots and like why we formed in the first place, I guess. And Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think we're very unique as a region in that way. You know, if you go to somewhere like in Manchester or whatever, you'll, you'll get rugby clubs and football clubs and there's different clubs of different size. If you come to Stoke, you know, it is a football city, isn't it? You know, I was about to say that one of the, the good things for me is that I get to sort of take or promote Stoke across the world. Yeah. And, you know, so I've been sort of conferences in America, a couple in Europe, a number across Britain, you know, where I've sort of spoken about different elements of Stoke's history or, or, or different figures or different individuals. And I went to America, for example, and a lot of people there were talking about American football or baseball. I, I sort of stood up in front of the audience and started talking about Stoke. And in the back of my mind, I was like, you know, does anyone even like, is anyone even bothered, you know? Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, I got loads of really interesting questions and we ended up talking to various different people about the club and about Stoke. And that was at the time when the lapse film was a big thing. So we were talking about that. And, you know, it, it's really good to be able to promote the club and spread the gospel, shall we say. Do you think that if you weren't a Stoke fan and say you were... I don't know, I, like, this might be a really bad example, but a Watford fan or, or something, I don't know. And maybe the club doesn't have quite as much history. I, I know nothing about Watford's history. Maybe they have more than us. But because you're a Stoke fan and you're able to, because we're such an interesting entity, being so old, being so historic, having these sort of football-defining moments, as you mentioned there, with sort of red cards and automatic promotions and stuff and, and other events throughout history, do you think you'd have focused your efforts on a different club of the club that you were a fan of or do you think you'd have always fallen back on Stoke City or do you think you'd have maybe not done this at all if you weren't a Stoke fan? I'll be honest when I've left my master's degree initially the university came to me well they offered me a topic that what I didn't find interesting it was about athletics and crew or mm-hmm. I was like, that's not really my cup of tea that doesn't float my boat yeah so to answer your question I don't think I would I don't think I would be doing lecturing now. I don't think I would be doing history now necessarily. You know, I think the fact it's it's Stoke and it's it's my club, it means a little bit more. That's really poignant then in that case because like, well, one of two things, if your dad maybe hadn't introduced you as a Stoke fan in the first place and blooded you in, or if Stoke weren't quite as interesting as they were, 
none of this might have happened, right? Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad the stars have aligned and this has happened because, like, I'm not sure if anybody else would have done it. Has like, Is there anybody else, you know, that has done stuff like this or is it just you? So, Tony Matthews, I think he's passed away now, but he, he wrote in a, a book 20 years ago or so, which was amazing. I know that Simon Lowe, you different books about different periods and the club's history, which were really good. Hmm. So there's a few different people floating around. John Leonard has written about Tony Waddington. Mm-hmm. His book's very good. Susan Gordon has written about Frank Sue. So there's a few different people knocking around and have just done stuff. And I think one of the things I try and say is that I don't claim to know everything. Yeah. But, you know, I, I, I like to think I'm contributing something, you know, towards recording our history and promoting our heritage. I think so. I've always said about Stoke fans, it's our collective that makes us stronger, obviously, Bizanita 40 or United Strength is Stronger, you know, the fact that all of us fans, some are not as sure, but some really throw themselves into us. Some of us go on Radio Stoke and rant about them week in, week out. Some people do really silly little podcasts like this, and some people do really important work into their history and things like that, such as yourselves and the and names you just mentioned, and that the fact that we're all so diverse and we're all producing this this storm of information and fan-made media like you said it before there's not many clubs like this one i think it is really really special yeah no it, it is special and i think you know one of the nice things now is that there's so many different people doing different things you know mm. so you're doing podcasts i know in, on twitter there's loads of people interacting constantly it supports clubs in sort of the old-fashioned kind of way i think it is as well just before we move on to the files fc talking of players in that case with the work you're doing and being at MMU, maybe even further back from just your supporting days and your time at Vale, you must have come into contact with sort of players or, or, or staff to do with Stoke, right? Yeah, so one of my big sort of memories as a kid was was me and my dad, we wanted to get a shirt signed, basically, Stoke mm. shirt. So we turned up at the Tiny Stadium, it was a home game. We were there six or seven hours before kickoff. Mm. Because back in those days... I think now, if I'm right in saying this, but the place where we were side entrance, mm. sort of around the corner from the shop, the club shop, and they were behind fences and stuff like that, they're sort of shielded away a little bit now. But, but back then, the players used to just park up on the main car park and walk in to the front door, pretty mm. much. So basically, we spent we spent like a few hours just sitting on the car park, and as soon as a player pulled up and got out of his car, we'd sort of pounce on them and make him sign this, this shirt. <laughs> and, and in the end, we got pretty much everybody. And I've, I've still got that same shirt. Oh, wow. And we've still got it. But that, that was sort of my first experience of sort of interacting with, with players, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I just remember, I don't know if it's been mentioned before, but we used to have a Dutch goalkeeper called Ed, Ed Degree. Mm-hmm. And the, the guy was absolutely huge. And he had a receding hairline and a giant moustache. <laughs> and I remember him signing the shirt and thinking, oh my God, you are huge. <laughs> no wonder no one's going past you. Yeah, but you know it, it was good, and you know again, you know, that's a really good memory that I have of me and my dad sort of being at Stoke, and and that really helped to sort of develop and foster my love. Any um any any more recent ones from your time in academia or Vale? When I was at college, I was part of like a football academy basically. Mm. Um, so we did uh we did our studies for two or three days, but then we did football alongside it. So we train two, three times a week, have a couple of match days. And one of the things that we used to do in the summer was we used to go down to Lillyshaw, which was where the FA used to deliver sort of the UA for B, UA for A courses, mm. modifications. 
name the sum of courses used to be full of ex-pros or people involved with professional football clubs. Mm-hmm. And the idea was we'd go down for a day or so and they would coach us as, as practice, basically. So we had a chance to coach sort of young players. And it, it was pretty much hit or miss who was there. Mm. And so sometimes you would go down and it would just be at sort of lower league players who you didn't know or recognise or academy coaches or facing coaches. Mm-hmm. Then other times there'd be you know quite famous people knocking around. So we, we went down once and we all turned up, those 50 you know, novice players. And who is there is, is Gary Neville, <laughs> Oligrama Solskjaer, and Ryan Giggs. <laughs> he must have been their first sort of year doing their badges. Yeah. I know that you know, Giggs was still playing, Neville was still playing. I'm not sure about Solskjaer at that point. Mm. But it, everyone was going wild. I was like, oh my God, look at, you know, these guys are going to be coaching us today. <laughs> yeah. But then in the, in the corner, I was losing my mind for a totally different reason. In the corner, I'd spotted James O'Connor. Way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so he sat in the corner. I'm like, oh my God, it's James O'Connor. Yeah. My mate's like, Who, who's James O'Connor? I was like, he plays for Stoke. <laughs> and mate's like, yeah, but there's, there's Ryan Gitzer. I don't care. It's like James O'Connor's in the corner. <laughs> and at the end, we were told, you know, don't ask for the autographs or photos during the day. But afterwards, you know, feel free to ask you know, some of the guys and... Mm. We'll be happy to do stuff, and the the only you know and all my friends who've got photos and selfies with you know the big boys, mm. you know, Gucci, Neville's, Solskjaer's, and autographs and stuff. And the only thing I came away with that day was uh, a scrap of paper signed by James O'Connor. because <laughs> that was the one you cared about, right? Yeah, I was the one I cared about. I generally didn't bother with any of the other ones. Oh, and I I remember him being so surprised. I walked up to him. Because obviously you know, everybody else would go into all the sort of bigger names. Yeah. I remember him looking up like dead surprised. It's like, uh, Mr. O'Connor, do you mind if you, can you sign this for me, please? As a, you know, as a big fan of yours when you were Stoke. Mm. Uh, and we had a little bit of a chat and he was a really genuine, nice guy. Oh, bless. Uh, but just, you know, I think that just summarises my, my my love for the club and my stupidity. <laughs> but, uh, you know, when surrounded by a few famous faces, I went for the Stoke player. Yeah, but you say that, but like, like that's the one that means more to you. Like, yes, people might have got a little bit more excited if you'd have mentioned the names like Solskjaer, Neville, but that doesn't matter. It's what means more to you, and I'm sure you wouldn't have told that story in the same intensity as, as if it was just Neville and Solskjaer, and if O'Connor wasn't there. It's what yeah. means more to you at the end of the day. It's more of a personal connection. Like, like I'd, I'd rather meet Andy Wilkinson than I would Lionel Messi. I, I genuinely mean that. I mean, I, I have to say, I, I was so, so lucky to, like, have an opportunity. There weren't many groups of academy players who were allowed to do that, to go mm. and be on those courses and to be sort of the guinea pigs, if you like. Yeah. And I think soon after that, in the next year, we, we changed the course entirely. Oh. And went to St. George's Park. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I don't know if people or players these days, sort of in academies or whatever, at college, get that same chance. To sort of have that experience, but I was I was so lucky to have that sort of day. Oh well, there we go. That's a really good meeting story. Speaking of players, then let's move on to the Files FC. Eh? Let's go. Okay, so Martin, I'd like you to run through your ultimate Stoke team of past or present. Ideally, 
This is one goalkeeper and then two each of centre-back, full-back, midfielder, winger, striker. doesn't have to be. If it's a really wacky random formation, that's fine. But <laughs> if you could give a reason for each player, that's great. Anyone that is in the main team gets a vote and that goes towards the main Files FC, which can be found on the website. You can nominate subs if you want to, but they don't get votes just because they're honourable mentions. So start with goalkeeper. Away you go, please, mate. Yeah, so I've tried to choose people that I've seen play in person. Yes. So... I'd go for Steve Simonson in goals. Okay. He was basically our first choice goalkeeper for ages. Mm. Pretty much all the time we were in the championship, he was our first choice goalkeeper. And I think like he gets overlooked a little bit sometimes. Mm. I mean, to be fair, we've, we've got a good choice of goalkeepers to go at. Yes, yeah. You know, I I checked his stats yesterday because I wanted to check I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't picking a, a door <laughs> and looking through those, those tinted specs. Yeah, yeah. So apparently. You know, he played nearly 200 games for us. Oh, wow. And he's, he's got a little record, apparently. So he kept seven consecutive clean sheets for us, which is a record, I think. Oh, wow. And I think he was player of the year a couple of times as well. But he, he was just a very solid, reliable, dependable player. Mm. And I think in our, in our promotion year in 2008, you know, he, he was the first choice goalkeeper for most of that. Mm. I think people sometimes forget because, you know, Carlo Nash came in on loan, didn't he, for the mm. last months yeah you know but he, he was Simmonson and played 95 percent of the season so yeah so yeah so happened for him yeah you're right a name that's not actually cropped up that many times but it's such an important period in that championship era yeah so so i went i went for him of course and you know, people like Simmonson, bedrovich you know there's, there's loads to choose from isn't there mm. for me you know i growing up and being a younger fan in my teenage years he was the he was the man yeah okay next please so I'm going to go for Andy Wilkinson as a fullback. Okay. I just think there's something about his sort of journey from being a fan himself yeah. to academy player to first team. It just warms the heart, doesn't it? Really. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For me, like his his story as a player is more interesting than any other. And and the thing is, like that's a rarity now in modern mm. football. Yeah. You know, very few players actually break through into first teams from their academies, mm. especially sort of in the Premier League and Championship. But, you know, he, he just resonated with the fans, didn't he? Yes. You know, just his sort of love and passion for the club. He just pulled out of him. He could just tell he had such pride every time he pulled the shirt on. Yeah. It, it's just a shame, really, that he he never had that moment where he scored. <laughs> you know, I think if he'd got that one goal, you know, I know Wembley went close, and then oh. it was a game later on, wasn't it, in the Premier League season, he was the one just wide. Yeah. Breaks you know, my heart. Yeah. <laughs> I know, so it's just a shame he didn't have that moment. Mm, yeah, I agree. Well, he he was effectively just one of us, wasn't he? Oh, yeah, 100%. And that's what made him so good, I think. Yeah, he, he had that sort of raw, sheer passion, didn't he? Yeah. But he also had that ability to go alongside it. Mm. I don't know if we'll we'll see anybody of his sort of ilk again, really. I know Tom Edwards has come close for the last you know, couple of years. Mm. You know, but this season he sort of drifted away a little bit. Yeah. You know, people like Andy Wilkinson and Tom Edwards, you know, yeah. going fan to academy to first team. It's a, it's a rarity, isn't it? And mm-hmm. The other fullback, I've gone for Andy Griffin. Okay. He's quite unique because you know, he's had, I think, three different spells at Stoke. Yes. You know, so he came through as an academy player, went off, came back on loan, went off, came back again. But really, some of my memories was when he sort of came back in 2006-ish, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just when we were starting... It was the first year that Peter Cote had rebought the club. I think we were just starting to push for promotion. 
it was a season where we missed out ultimately on the last day. But Tony Pulis was pointing in all these sort of loan signs, wasn't he? Yeah. Ben Griffin was one of those. He was just a very solid, reliable fullback. Yeah. I think sort of age sort of crept up with him a little bit towards the end of his time here in the Premier League. But certainly during those first two, three years back with us during that time, I think it was really important. And also, you know, he, he scored that goal against Coventry. Yes. No, I, I can remember it now because it, it was stupidly foggy and misty. <laughs> you had to almost squint to try and see across the side of the pitch. That's how like foggy it was. <laughs> it was an awful game. I think it was midweek. No, no. And he just sort of picked up the ball, took a couple of touches, and he just hammered the shot in. It must have been 35 yards. It was the most remarkable long-distance goal I think I've ever seen. <laughs> and that's saying something with Stoke as well. Yeah, he never looked like scoring. And then he <laughs> just pulled out this 35-yard firecracker out yeah. of absolutely nowhere. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, you know, and he was captain as well during that period for a while. Yeah. So the first few years in the Premier League. He was an important figure, and I think sometimes we, we forget about him. Yeah. At centre-half, I've, I've gone controversial, Ben. Okay. So I've left Shawcross out. Really? Okay. Because I wanted to be a little bit different. Okay. So I've gone for Abdullahi Fai instead. Okay. When we first got promoted in that first year, mm. first few months, the team wasn't very good, mm. we say. We were very much reliant on sort of the people that God has promoted in the first place. Mm-hmm. And we didn't really bring in many signings. you know. So I think for that first game against Bolton, I think we only had... Dave Kitson and Olive and Jana, who were new signings. So, you know, we, we, we were struggling to attract people in, I think. But then we pulled in sort of Abdullahi Fai. And I remember I had a, a big Newcastle fan who was a friend of mine. Mm. And he didn't rate him at all. Oh. <laughs> well, he was a dud. <laughs> but ultimately, you know, what a credible signing he was. Yes. And he was a, a different breed of centre half to what we were used to. Hmm. Shawcross during that time and sort of Cole Court. There were no nonsense centre backs. Yes. You know, Abdullah Fire was a completely different mould. He had that no nonsense approach, but he was blessed with just such calmness. Yeah. So whereas you know a Cole Court would have just headed a long ball away, Abdullah Fire would just pull it down, take a touch, play it out. And you know, he was a he was a big, big fan favourite for a long time, wasn't he? Oh well yeah, like I guess in that sense, he's very pureless, but he's very unpureless as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I just think that we were the perfect match for him. He was a big fish in small pond, really. Hmm. And he had sort of a, an arrogance and a confidence and a swagger about him. But we just loved him to bits because he was a perfect mixture of no-nonsense, hardcore, tough guy. Yeah. Also with the calmness to go alongside it. Hmm. You know, I know people always talk about Hoof and Shawcross, but you know, during that period buying Shawcross were immense as well. Yes. During a period when, you know, in front of him, they didn't have the same amount of quality necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, but he played a massive part in surviving that first year and then sort of building on that. Oh, yeah, 100%, yeah. He's not been mentioned as much as I thought he would do. He creeps in every now and again, but uh, I guess they go for, <laughs> like you say, the likes of Ryan Shawcross. But, like, there's fair reason to say why Abdullah Fai is one of the more talented centre-backs we've had over the last few years. Yeah. If we sent to half, people are going to be streaming at the screens now, or, radio, or radios or phones or whatever. So, I've gone for Jerry Taggart. Okay. So, I haven't picked Shawcross or who. <laughs> so, for me, 
Jerry Taggart when he came in, he was only here for I think two and a half seasons, something like that. Mm. But I can't remember a player coming in and making such a big impact in such a right. short period of time. Mm. Well, I think when he came in, it was it was Tony Pulis's first season in charge, basically. Yeah. So the year before he, we just about scrambled safety. I think we'd avoided allocation on the last day. Mm-hmm. And so in his first full season, Pulis, we were still struggling a little bit. I think we need a bottom by Christmas time. We can see them gold. We weren't that good, really. Mm. It looked like we're going to be in the same sort of situation as the previous year. Yeah. But then, sort of out of nowhere, he just pulled Jerry Taggart out on loan from Leicester. <laughs> and Taggart was, he was knocking on a bit. He must have been in his sort of mid 30s by that point. And he was sort of known then as sort of being injury prone, past his best, that sort of guy. Mm. But he came in and he almost transformed our defence overnight on his own. Huh. He was just sort of this natural leader. He was no nonsense. And I think his first game was away at West Ham. Mm. At the time West Ham were top of the league and they were flying high. I think he had people like Zamora showing him what jump for them. And we put in this most remarkable defensive display and we won 1-0. And, and Taggart was a big reason why that happened. Mm-hmm. And, he, and we just sort of built on that. Again, he was just a natural leader and he just got people into the right positions and he was sort of no-nonsense and he did the basics really well. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, he suited us because, you know, Peel's obviously played quite a deep defensive line. Mm-hmm. He sort of got away with not having that pace anymore. And he, he just transformed the back four and he was a big part of why we survived that year and he sort of helped us to build the year after as well. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, if you remember, Ben, but there was a game when we played into Millwall and there's a very famous image of Taggart in the Stoke shirt. I don't know what had happened, but he'd had some sort of altercation with Dennis Wise. <laughs> and round in front of the referee, they were both on the floor. And I just remember Taggart grabbing Wise by the neck and literally <laughs> pinning him down. Yeah. And I think the referee was Uriah Rennie at the time. And remarkably, he, he didn't get sent off, <laughs> Taggart. I, think, I, think I don't even know if he got a booking in the end. <laughs> but... He, he just sort of summarised what he was like. He was just no nonsense. He was intimidating. Yeah. Just a, just a really good leader. He yeah. made a massive impact to the side. Yeah. In in theory, a good partner to have July 5 then. Uh, in theory, yes. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> this is what everybody else is shouting about across the roof. Ah, look, like, I say this all the time. This is this is your team who you feel the personal connection to. This isn't necessarily the, the greatest Stoke City team of all time. This is who your favourites are. I love Shawcross and Hoof. They're, they're amazing for us. Yeah. Well, on a personal note, Taggart and Fai just they just really resonate with me a little bit more. Really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And well, you give fair reason to, to say that. So in midfield, as a winger, gone for Liam Lawrence. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's an awful lot more to say about him really that other people haven't said. Mm-hmm. But I don't think we can underestimate or understate how important he was mm. in that promotion season. Yeah. Our first couple of years in the Premier League. I think he racked up 15 goals or so yeah. in that promotion year. You know, and he was the perfect sort of foil for Fuller. You know, he sort of provided the assists and the fed through balls and things like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, he was sort of the perfect deal of the four, you know, the, the guy in short crosses, the cold calls, those sort of people at the time. Mm. It was weird because he, he wasn't really blessed with a load of pace, but he just sort of his technical ability and his delivery and that sort of analysis and understanding of the game that it just got him through. Yeah. And the thing is as well, the goals that he did score, 
they were important goals. Yeah, yeah, big time. You know, so bad goal against Coventry in that promotion year where, you know, he pulls his shirt off and throws it away. And, yeah. You know, that was, that was a key moment in our season. Mm. We've been 1-0 down, haven't we, in that game? Yeah. You know, the goal against Hull in our first year when we got promoted, that effectively saved us. Yeah. We just launched one in from our 30 yards. Yeah. He was just a big player for a big moment, wasn't he? So, oh, yeah, 100%. He, he was Stoke City's action, man. On the other side, I've gone for Peter Hoekstra. Okay. I forgot to mention earlier on. Yeah. So, you have to remember that when Hoekstra signed, you know, we were in the third tier of English football. Yeah. His signing sort of came out of nowhere. And the thing is, he'd, he'd spent most of his career playing for Ajax and PSV. Mm-hmm. And it'd only been a couple of years earlier. He played for... He'd been in the Dutch national team. Mm-hmm. I think he played in Euro 96. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well. So, quite how he ended up with, with us... I'll never know, really. Because <laughs> so I think he was sort of in his late 20s. I think he was 29 or something like that. You know, mm. He wasn't in his late 30s. Yeah. But, you know, he was he was one hell of a player then. His signing was a hell of a coup for whoever actually managed to pull it off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he, he was just a diamond, really, amongst the, amongst the sea of mediocrity <laughs> at that sort of level of football. Mm. And he was a little bit injury-prone, but when he was in the mood and he turned it on, he was just incredible to watch. Yeah. You know, he, he was probably by far the best player in that league on his day. Yeah. He was so good technically, and when he was in full flow dribbling, he just seemed to glide across the surface and just, you know, ease past defenders. Yeah. And played a part in the first year or two in the championship as well. People talk about his hat trick against Reading, mm-hmm. which I think it's one of the first times I saw an individual player just dominate a game on his own. Mm. He was incredible on the day. You know, he got his three goals, but he got, could have got more. He just tore Reading to pieces. Yeah. He's probably the best individual display I've, I've probably ever seen. From a player. Oh, wow. But yeah, he was he was something special mm. at a time where, you know, we weren't necessarily blessed with players of the very highest, highest quality. Yes, exactly, yeah. And I think from that, I think he was voted the, the best player the first 10 years the Britannia Stadium. I think like he that. was as well. I remember... Saying that, actually, yeah, admittedly, that time wasn't the best in the world, as you said. But he he was a bit of he was a bit of quality in a time when there wasn't much else in the team. So yeah, I can completely see why he got voted in that category. And, and the thing is, though, again, we've we've been blessed recently, haven't we, with the likes of Everton and Pennant and Anantovic and Shakiri. Mm. We've been blessed in that position. So it was a hard choice to to get down to those two, really, to Lawrence and Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. Sentiment. I don't know if I'm cheating here, Ben, but I've gone for Bojan as a midfielder. In no, centre. I think like well, hey, look, I said you can break the rules however you want, but yeah, right. I, I personally class him as a midfielder more than a forward, if that makes sense. Maybe we're playing some sort of diamond or something. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll fix it in the end <laughs> when I know who, who's in the team. Don't worry. Yeah, but yeah, I, I loved Bojan. I genuinely love the guy. Mm. Probably more than any other player in the last five or six years. Mm-hmm. I was just so mesmerised by his, his ability. Mm-hmm. And he did things with such ease at times that other players just didn't do or couldn't do. Yeah, Technically, he was brilliant. And the thing is, like, he, there were moments and matches where he would just do something special. Yeah, Either to create a goal, or to score a goal, or just a little bit of skill that just made you just sort of sit up and go, oh, wow. That was brilliant. Yeah, yeah. One of his first games, um, I don't know if it, was, it might have been a pre-season game or, or whatever, but he sort of picked up the ball on the halfway line 
And he sort of got on the half turn and, and turned to play out the opposite side and, and switched to play. Mm. Well, this defender, this sort of midfielder, was, was storming in at him. And I, I was like, oh my God, he's going to be clattered here. <laughs> but he, he sort of opened up and he just nonchalantly nutmegged the midfielder. Yeah. Drifted around him and carried on. And it, it was just a little moments like that. Which yeah. I thought, wow, you know, this is, you know, this guy's. It's something special. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could tell he was well drilled in what he was doing. Like it, it seemed effortless, didn't it? Yeah, you know. I think his goal against Tottenham, you know, that individual goal at White Hart Lane, mm. where he even the halfway line. You know, he just sort of sort of summarizes the ability that he had. Yeah. You know, the pace, the control, dribbling awareness, the finish. Mm-hmm. Just a little bit of magic. That little bit of magic dust that he had. It was beautiful. Oh yeah. I. This is going to be. It may sound stupid, but. I loved him so much that my my girlfriend used to give me stick about it. That <laughs> I loved him more, loved him more than I loved her. Oh no! So, so, so for my birthday, she she bought me a birthday cake and had his face printed on. <laughs> the image she used, I don't know how she did it, but he was very celebrating, and another still player behind him chasing him. Yeah, yeah. And she she photoshopped my face onto the player, the oh, other player. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I was chasing Bojan across yeah, the cake, yeah. but yeah, but I, I just loved him. Yeah. The other midfielder, I, I guess the more defensive midfielder is James O'Connor. Okay. I, I won't spend too long talking about him because you've, you've just done a full podcast. <laughs> but uh, I just remember loving him because he he was quite similar to me when I was a young player, you know, sort of in like early, very early teens, because he was really hard working. And the one thing I remember is just how hard he worked. Yeah. His work rate was phenomenal. He, he must have covered every blade of grass in every game. You know, if GPS systems had been around back then for football, he would have covered miles and miles. Yeah, yeah. But he also had that little bit of technical ability as well to go alongside it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, he, he, he was a terrific player. He really was. Mm. Oh, yeah. I agree, yeah. Ricardo Fuller was one of the strikers. I think the two legends is overused in football now. Mm-hmm. But we use it too too frequently. Yeah. But I think he, he genuinely is like a legend. Okay. Uh, well big he, he is he was you know, every time that he got on the ball, you just felt the crowd just have an intake of breath. Mm-hmm. He would always produce in every match there would be a moment or two moments where he would produce something and make yeah, a difference. Yeah. Whether that was doing an amazing run and setting somebody else up or whether it was unleashing like a thunderbolt out of nowhere mm-hmm. you, know, you just knew that regardless of whether he was involved or not you know the two minutes when he was involved he was going to score mm-hmm. you know but, but it's strange because when he signed there wasn't really that much of a excitement about it really. mm-hmm. at the time he was he's a bit of a nomadic striker but he was he was just the man for us wasn't he oh, that yeah. guy that I time and I know there's lots of stories that about how Pulis gave him sort of a little bit more freedom and rope than other players and yeah. stuff like that. And how laid back he was, but <laughs> he just had the right manager. Oh, yeah. Right place, right time, wasn't it? And the last one is Peter Fawn. Okay. I don't think we've been blessed with many strikers who have scored 20-plus goals in a season. Mm. And I think Peter Fawn was the last one to score 30 in a season. Mm. I'm sure he got 30. But he was just a natural finisher. Yeah. Clinical finisher. And he, he just banged goals in for fun, really. Yeah. You know, he he was the main man. He's yeah. probably the best striker at that level. Mm. I remember when he was sold to Cardiff, 
I think it was the start of the season when we got promoted to the championship. But we sold him to Cardiff and we sold Graham Cavanaugh to Cardiff as well. Mm-hmm. They were in the same division as us at that time. and we, There's a bit of a rivalry there. But I was absolutely heartbroken when he was when he was sold. Mm-hmm. I think when you're when quite young, sometimes you just imagine that players will stay there forever. Uh, but I was gutty when he left. Mm-hmm. He also sticks in the mind because he, he came back a few years later and he played against us at the Britannia Stadium. Yeah. And I don't know if it was for, for Cardiff or for, for Norwich one or the other, but I remember him scoring a hat-trick against us. Oh, God. But I remember the Stoke fans gave him a standing ovation because he, he didn't sort of celebrate, he refused to celebrate. Mm. That was one of the first times I remember like Stoke fans giving an ovation to an opposition player, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think that sort of showed how much we loved him, begrudgingly almost, mm. despite the fact he scored a hat-trick against us. But yeah, he he was a natural natural goal scorer and he was a he was a hell of a player. Mm, yeah. Am I, am I allowed to have some bench players? Of course you are. Of course you are. <laughs> so lots of sort of near misses, really. So I sort of got the obvious ones of Shawcross, Youth, Simonson, and Arnie. But then I, I've thrown in Graham Kavanagh in there as well. Oh, okay. He was tremendous for us. He partnered O'Connor in the centre of midfield, and he was a big player for us during sort of late nineties, early two thousands. His departure to Cardiff left a bit of a bitter taste in the mouth, I think. Mm, yes. He's always he's always got a lot of stick. But no, he was he was a great player. Mm. I've gone for South Jow and Lee Hendry. South Jow and Hendry, okay. During Pulisic's return that first year when Coates had bought the club, mm. obviously we were we were reliant on loan market. Mm-hmm. And Jow and Hendry were like two of the big first arrivals on loan that came mm-hmm. probably through the season. Yeah. Well, I remember Hendry came in and he sort of just, he just sparked us off, really. Yeah. I think one of his first games was away at Leeds, where we beat him 4-0 at Allen Road. Mm. The pair of them, you know, they, they just gave us a little bit of impetus at the right time, if that made sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so not enough to, to be legends or to go into that best 11, but they both made good contributions during that sort of promotion, or when we were chasing promotion. Mm. Got Peter Crouch in there, just because I love him. And then Adi Akinbayi as well. Okay. Akinbayi was, uh, I think people would agree, he was a very limited striker, but he was big, he was strong, powerful, and he, and he worked his socks off. The only problem was that he, his first touch was likely to go 40 yards in the wrong direction. <laughs> you know, but he, he, was a, he was a big sort of figure. Mm. He got some important goals. So yeah, there's sort of, sort of, some of the names that uh, grew out there just for consideration yeah 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 and that's your team then right yeah so that's a team Simonson, griffin taggett Faye, wilkinson uh hoopstra Boyan, o'connor lawrence fawn and ricardo fuller you know you told me before this podcast that you said oh there, there might be some players in there that have conformed to you know what we've seen so far there's some really standout names in there like James O'Connor's not got in many teams. EML will be delighted about that. Jerry Taggart, I think that's possibly his first mention in the Files FC. Peter Thorne up front is a rarity. Liam Lawrence probably doesn't get as much credit as he deserves. Steve Simonson we've touched on. There's some real different names in there. I can see why people think, oh, well, he's not picked Shawcross and Hooth and other standout names. But the fact is, Martin could argue that the players that he has mentioned aren't, aren't in enough in your teams so at the end of the day it's whoever resonates with you and it's nice to see some new names in there nice to see some new faces in there and they're sort of 
will help to chase the pack of those that are well out in front in the files I see at the moment. So, yeah, it's nice to see some new names in there. I will get my tin hat ready, Ben. Oh, I, w- I wouldn't worry about that. They've got to go through <laughs> me to get to you, so I, w- I wouldn't worry about that at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, these are just sort of names that resonate with me. Yeah. And a lot of these sort of come from my sort of childhood mm. and my sort of early years following Stoke. And I think perhaps I'm a little bit older as well than than some of the, the previous guests. Per- yeah, perhaps so. No, maybe not that much older, but yeah, yeah, I understand. Like, it's it's those players in your childhood that make the difference, right? You're just more emotionally invested in them. I think you gain a little bit more of a level head. It's those players that you see as your idols when you're growing up, I think, that you're more impressed by because you've seen literally nothing like it before, so... Yeah. So, so there we go. So that's my... 11. After 11, that goes towards the Files FC. You can find that on the website. I want to bring this back a little bit then to you in the present day now and let's go back to your sort of work in academia and stuff. What are you working on right now? So right now, I'm in the last 18 months of my PhD. Mm-hmm. So I'm just writing that up at the minute. But the latest thing I'm working on is two little sort of mini projects almost. Mm-hmm. Coffee, I guess. The first is the Wizards, Wizards of the Dribble stuff. Yes. Um, so I'm doing like a Stoke City Legends series. Mm-hmm. So the idea is basically to pick out a few important figures and players from my recent history and sort of do an extended biography of them. Mm-hmm. But I've tried to pick people that haven't been well covered. Yeah. You know, so for example, people like Stanley Matthews, Gordon Bank, and people like that, they've been really well covered, they have autobiographies, biographies, yeah. stuff like that. So I've tried to focus on people that have been, were just as important potentially, but have perhaps been overlooked slightly mm. so you know people like Freddie Steele Ed Skills you know I've, I've done one on Mark Steen as well recently mm. so that's one sort of little project on the way okay the other is that I've, was inv- I've been invited or was invited to do a talk about Stoke's history okay however this whole coronavirus is <sighs> has put that back in somewhat yeah um, but, but basically it was 25 images of but defines Stoke City's history, basically. Mm. So I've gone through different archives and through various places to find you know, 25 iconic images, mm. each one which tells sort of a different story about about our sort of history as a club. Mm. And the idea is that whenever I actually get this back going again, that rather than me stand and present, it will be a chance for people to share their memories of, of mm. what that sort of... And the thing is, like, some of them are modern, you know, so there's one I picked out of Edrington, mm-hmm. Wembley, I- Five nil. Yeah. Where we celebrating, you know. So that will bring back people's memories. And there's some sort of older stuff, like John Ritchie when he he scored against Arsenal in the FA Cup semi final. Mm-hmm. So so the idea is that you know I throw these images out there, um, to sort of the audience and and they can sort of tell me what their memories of these guys are. And... That sounds great. The first one I think so the stuff of wizards. I like. I guess that's like Stoke City heroes, but of a more objective opinion where i take somebody who's like <laughs> it's their favorite player and they can't stop talking about them on a podcast like you're looking at them in a more objective light and that okay they might have been people's favorite players for traditional reasons but they deserve the recognition and here's why right yeah i mean i think the big thing for me you know again i, I keep i keep mentioning you know, people's stories are important but you know one of the first Stoke City boots I saw when I was younger, sort of as a teenager, was the Encyclopedia of Stoke City. Mm. And then there's there's another one which is like the Who's Who of Stoke City. Yeah. Where basically there's like little mini, they're about 50 word 
sort of biographies of different players from mm. A to Z. Okay. Players. And I remember reading that. I was like, oh, you know, I want to know more about this guy. Yeah. yeah. I want to know more than 50 words. You know, so I, I've sort of stolen that sort of idea. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that's really good because, like, people like me, I, I simply don't have time to be scouring through stuff about Stoke City's history and their players in that way. I've tried to start the Stoke City Hero series to to gain a bit more of an appreciation why maybe some fans like certain players from a subjective point of view, but definitely from like an objective point of view, this is something completely different. Hopefully, and I'm, I'm trying to find that sort of balance where it's it's not just a small covering, but neither is it like a, a hundred page. Yeah, it's digestible, right? Yeah, so I'm trying to make it digestible and readable and you know and interesting as well. So. I've had some nice feedback. Uh, well, and and you're going to get more from me. I think it's a really good idea, honestly. Like It's something that I've been looking at, and I look forward to that coming out. The other one you mentioned, these iconic images of Stoke City, and again, sort of getting the fans included in that, I think that's fantastic, because these images... It's very hard to class an image as iconic objectively. They can be iconic, but in a way that's almost indescribable. Am I right, or did you manage to just find some really really iconic photos that perfectly display no no i totally agree and you know i i think initially when i sort of did the first draft i'd like i'd like over 100 images mm. and i was like how how do you even cut this down <laughs> so in the end I've, I've sort of tried to pick images that people have different stories about mm. but which cover different periods in time so for example you know the evington one is a more modern one mm. well then there's one of the ones i used is when the butler street stand roof collapsed in mm. during the 70s you know basically the images of, of the roof having collapsed and the, the director standing in front of it mm. well basically you know that period in our history basically facilitated Waddington having to sell off our best players period so the team that have won sort of the league cup you know in that decade mm. well the idea is that you know that image people can talk about the whole period if that makes sense mm. you know, speaking we can talk about Tony Waddington as a manager we can talk about different players you talk about Victoria Ground, and you know, so I've tried to pick images where people can talk about different aspects of it, mm. or it will inspire different memories. Hopefully, that's really good. I think two really exciting projects on top of a PhD as well. You, you really are Stoke City through and through, aren't you? Yeah, and I'll, I'll just throw one more in there as well. Okay, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah. Just because I, I came across this the other day. This is really sort of geeky of me. <laughs> <laughs> well, basically, I found out that in 1890. Stoke City set up one of the first baseball teams, professional baseball teams in England. Oh, right. <laughs> so we were one of four football clubs that set up a baseball team to start a baseball league. <laughs> so I found this early on in the week, and I'm, and I'm just... But it's, it's just little things like that, you know. That's that's something that I find really interesting, because I'm a, I'm a geek. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that, though. Someone's got to be in. <laughs> Someone's got to find this information yeah. and, and disperse it out, and... I think you're absolutely the right person to do it by the sounds of it. It's nice that you found something you really like and you're willing to share it with everybody. Yeah. So, yeah, so the PhD's great, but it's a lot of these sort of smaller projects, like the Wizards of the Drill stuff, like the images, Mm. you know, that I find really enjoyable. Yeah, I think so, absolutely. So, in terms of where we can find this stuff, the Stoke City photo is hopefully coming at some point soon, whenever this all clears up right, and then Stoke City Legends, Wizards of Drivel. And then your PhD, is, is there any way of accessing any of your academic work? or? Yeah, so in terms of PhD, there's a few different academic papers which I've published, mm. which people can access through 
universities, so if the university can get the dream, hopefully. Mm. Well, for other people, if you want to give me a shout, you know, I'll, I'll send copies out there, we'll post links out maybe after oh. this. You know, so there's one about Stokes Origins, there's one about football in Silicon Trent in the 1800s, there's one about the Sentinel Cup, mm-hmm. which we have presented by the Sentinel newspaper. Yeah. So that, that's the longest running, consistently running cup competition in the country. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's there's a few different things out there. That's fantastic. And and you say you're willing to, to share that out if somebody is listening and wanted to find out about this sort of stuff. What's the best way to get hold of you? I through Twitter is probably the best way. Mm-hmm. Or through my email address. Yes, I'll leave the links to both in the description, definitely. Well, yeah, well, there's lots of things. So I can be papers, I can send out to people if they want to. And then the Wizards of the Dribble stuff, you know, they're accessible for free. Perfect. It's out there for people interested. And I'm sure there will be some. Don't be wrong, like like any form of content, this sort of stuff isn't for everybody. But for some people, it's really invaluable. You get to dedicate all your time doing this. Some people really don't, but they want to find about it anyway. So nice that it's there and it is accessible, or it can be made accessible anyway. So I think that's really good, mate. One thing you did say you might have wanted to talk about was modern football grounds. <laughs> I'll be diplomatic and say I'm, I'm not a massive fan <laughs> of modern football grounds. Yeah. And I'm talking in terms of, you know, places like Middlesbrough, for example, or Reading, mm. Swansea perhaps as well, you know, Cardiff. Modern football grounds are all very similar now. Mm. We don't really have an identity. Yeah. I think a lot of them are quite empty. They're empty shells without much atmosphere. Mm. And although, like, modernisation is just a natural thing that's going to happen, mm. But it, it still makes me a little bit, a little bit sad to see some of the old grounds disappearing, just to be replaced by quite generic structures. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand that. Do you think that Stoke's fallen into that category? Uh, I think for a long time we did. Mm-hmm. I think when we got promoted and we had those first two or three years when the atmosphere was amazing, mm-hmm. we recapped a little bit of the old Victoria ground. Yeah. But even now, you know, it, it feels quite hollow at times. I think compared to places like the Victoria Ground. Mm. And I think that lots of clubs will find that. I mean, yeah. before we start recording, you know, you mentioned West Ham, for example, mm. Berlin Ground, Upton Park, mm. you know, the atmosphere there and, you know, how iconic it was. The Olympic Stadium doesn't compare to that now, does it, mm. at all, in any shape or form, you know. So, and one of the things I do enjoy is going to some of these older grounds, you know, because places like Goodison Park, places like you know, Brentford's Ground this year, you know, they may not be the best in terms of facilities, but just they use history. And I think we, these modern grounds don't have that. Over time, you know, I think modern grounds will sort of develop that, you know, sort of importance and that atmosphere and history, hopefully. Is that what it is? Is that just a case of they just need time, or is there something about the way that they're developed, or something that's lost in the old grounds that just isn't there anymore? It, it's a great question. And I, I hope that when I'm older, in my 60s, 70s, hmm. I would, I would talk about the Britannia Stadium in the same way that my my dad talks about the toy ground. Yeah. I hope. That's the hope, I guess. Yeah, and maybe it is just a case of, of time. It maybe takes time for grounds to develop that character. Yeah. Okay. I think we've covered pretty much everything, I think, there. Let's move into the final stages then. So, one of the final questions that I tend to ask everybody is that if you had a chance to work at Stoke City in any capacity, and that can be the number nine if you really want to be, where would you want to be, mate? I'm I'm torn a little bit mm-hmm. because I don't know if I would like the pressure of 
uh, employed by Stoke and like a, as a manager or coach or something like okay, that. Okay. I think that personal connection is, is quite it adds pressure, doesn't it? I think. Mm. And I know this is stupid, but like on FIFA and Football Manager, I never play Stoke. Mm. <laughs> Just like the internal pressure of having to having that responsibility, I guess. Mm. But yeah, if if I did, you know, I would love to work with Stoke doing something to do with a history or heritage mm. in the community potentially. So. It's one of those, really. It's hard. It's hard to answer, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because, like you said at the very start of the podcast, like you don't know which direction you want to go in. Your career options change all the time. But I guess I don't even know if I'd know if I had a chance to work at somewhere at Stoke. It did flip flop depending on my mood and what's going on at the club at the time and what I think they need most. And I think I could give two reasonably good answers there one work in the community very rewarding thing to do but two work on stoke city's history it might not just be a dream it, you never know you keep doing what you're doing it might be a reality at some point they might want to work with you at some point you never know i i've had some productive chats with, with stoke over the last year or so <laughs> but obviously the nature of professional football is that the, the focus is on the here and now mm. you know a lot of my work has been done over the last few years or so where the club's been, not been in the greatest shape on the field. Mm. So obviously, you know, the emphasis has been on that. But I you know I, I am hopeful that at some stage, you know, they will they will work alongside me on, on some of the bits and pieces I'm working on. One to watch then, right? Hopefully, yeah. I mean, I, I would love, for example, to set up a Hall of Fame. Yeah. I think it's just something simple that the club could do. You know, one or two players every year, mm. at the end of, end of season awards, and just build it up from there. Mm. There's just little things like that, you know, and I think they're that we as a club could do an awful lot more to to promote what we're about and our importance historically yeah i think so as well get your eyes out then boys and girls <laughs> <laughs> you never know like i say i think we're drawing to some sort of a close and so is there anything else that you want to say discuss um, any shout outs you want to give to your own work or other people from your past that you've worked with or been to the football with anything like that this is this is your stage now mate so I, there's a few bits and pieces. They're only scattered memories, really. Mm. When I sort of agreed to, to come on and you said I could come on, um, I sort of scribbled down some of my sort of memories of Stoke and bits and pieces. Yeah. I mentioned like the importance of my dad earlier on. Mm. I don't think I can, can emphasise like how amazing it's been to sort of experience Stoke with him. Mm-hmm. We have season tickets and we've had season tickets to the Britannia Stadium or Beckley Subscribe Stadium now yeah. since it was opened. Mm-hmm. Same two seats. Yeah. You know, we go as many away games as money allows and time allows mm-hmm. and just being able to go around the, the country with him following Stoke is really special it's our thing Yeah. especially as I got older he works evenings a lot of evenings I work daytimes you know Saturday afternoons is our time if that makes sense mm. but I've been so lucky to have sort of have him and to be able to share those experiences with him mm. and just a, a silly story about my dad <laughs> sort of how he sort of loves Stoke my mum was telling me couple of years ago how my dad's friend was getting married and this is like you know 20 years ago or something like that mm. beyond that problem now <laughs> but they were all stoke fans so his friend got married in the morning in the church and then stoke were playing in the afternoon i can see where this is going <laughs> yeah, so, so basically the story goes that five of them basically as soon as the ceremony was over they must have had like a, a lunch mm. they rushed off to, to the victoria ground oh no fully dressed you know bow ties yeah yeah jackets, sort of stuff Stood in the booth and then oh. for 90 minutes. <laughs> and then and then rushed back afterwards to go to the evening part of the, of the wedding. Oh man, that must have been one hell of a day. 
<laughs> yeah, well, I think that summarises how important Stoke is to him, and, and that filters down into me as well, I think. Yeah. So, yeah, so he, he's the big one. Mm. A little shout-out to him as well, because, bless her, Cotton Sock, she's had to spend the last 30 years of me and Dad moaning about Stoke constantly. <laughs> and she often dropped us off at games and stuff like that as well, so she's had to come along for the ride. Yeah. She's, she's currently buying Stoke City gnomes put in the garden, so... <laughs> If no one's got any Stoke City gnomes, you know who's the contact. Oh, God, we'll, we'll start that series at some point as well, if we're not careful. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's just been, like I said, it's been such an amazing 20 years or so for me. Very much up and down, different experiences. Yeah. Good moments, bad moments, some just, just ridiculously daft. One of my favourite memories, you know, everyone talks about Wembley, for example, and playoffs when we won, and mm. lots of lots of stuff like that. One of my favourite memories was in the promotion year when we played Barnsley. I don't know if you remember away. Mm. Goofy all. Dylan Wallace scored a hat-trick. And we got a penalty in the last minute. And I remember when Lawrence scored the penalty in the last minute. I just lost my head. <laughs> and, I, and I raced all the way down to the front of the stand and just went bananas for about five minutes. And I, I, didn't, I didn't emerge and found my dad until the, the final whistle. Oh. <laughs> Something he's always, he always gives me stick about, about how I just disappeared for five minutes. Oh, dear. And I met him on Peter's podcast a couple of couple of weeks ago. Mm. And he mentioned you on Boscam mm. in that period. So our obviously now like we we've spent money like nobody's business the last ten years or so. Mm. Some big transfers. Yeah. But our first million pound player was a guy called Sammy Bangora. Oh, okay. I don't know if his name rings a bell with you. Or if people mentioned it before. Oh, like Sammy Bangora is a bit of a known and unknown entity for a couple of different reasons, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but you know just I remember him being signed for a million quid mm. I was like oh wow this is amazing and I think he smashed in like 10 goals in 8 games or 8 goals in his first 10 games something like that mm. and I just remember thinking oh this guy's the real deal and then he just disappeared didn't he he went to the African Cup of Nations and never returned yeah exactly like, what <laughs> happened <laughs> so I don't so I don't know but there's just little moments like that Bowling Stoke has never been a straightforward experience, I don't think. No. And that, well, um, I think if anyone is well-placed to find out what happened to Sammy Bangora, I think you might be the one, mate. Oh, I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> and then uh, just just one last little, little story, I guess. Mm. And this is my mum's favourite. I think it must have been like my 11th birthday or something like that, 12th birthday. Mm. I'd just gotten to fall in love with Stoke, and I'd, I think it was one of the first years I had a season ticket. Mm. For my birthday... Uh, for a home game, it was against Vail. My mum paid to hire a limousine to take me to the game. Okay. Me and my four mates. <laughs> so we, we pulled up to Britannia Stadium outside, and all, and all the people were peering in, like, oh, who's this? <laughs> and then it was just four, four 12 year olds, basically. <laughs> but my birthday was ruined because we spoke about Vail earlier. Mm. My birthday was ruined because it was, it was on the day of my birthday. Oh. And we played Vail. And we, and we lost two of them. Oh, no. It absolutely ruined that day. Oh. So hopefully I'll never get see another derby loss again. Well, hopefully you don't turn up in a limo. It seems like a bad omen. <laughs> yeah. And then I, I guess the very last thing is just me and my dad, we go as many games as we can away. Mm. And we went through a period where we went to nearly 20 away matches without seeing Stoke win. Oh, no. So we saw during that time where it was Hughes' last season. You know, we went to different games. We weren't winning an awful lot. Mm. And Lambert didn't win a, an away game, I don't think, either. And then we seemed to pick every game for um, Nowit and 
and Nathan Jones. We seem to pick every away game to go to that we didn't win. <laughs> and every game, dad, my dad was like, oh, you know, we're not going again. We won't we won't do another away game. Mm. Sorry. I'm done now. And then I'll, I'll always get a message a couple of days later saying, oh, should we get... <laughs> next game? But, you know, I think we've had a... As a club, we've, been, we've had a tough few years, haven't we? Mm. But I will say on a, on a positive note, I do think that Michael O'Neill is a guy. Yeah. He just seems to get us and get the club. Yeah. And that Barnsley away game, everything happens at Barnsley, apparently. <laughs> but the Barnsley, the Barnsley away game, when he, you know, his first match in charge, mm. you know, when we won't be some 4 2. That is one of, one of my favourite moments as a Stoke fan. Mm. You know, 4,000 Stoke fans in your way end, 20 odd games without seeing us win away from home. Yeah. Start of new era. And hopefully we'll get lots more of those. I'm sure we will. And you know what? You mentioned there a couple of times about throughout this podcast we've been talking about sort of these objective moments, these points in Stoke City's history and stuff like that that are defined, right? They've happened. And all this time it's boiled down to the very end of the podcast and you've been talking about these emotional moments, these moments that are subjective to you and have only happened to you and that you shared with your dad and stuff like that. And even though you're your work at the moment is not a, it might be emotionally driven, but it's not emotionally projected, you know, it's a very fact-based study, I guess, what you're doing. At the end of the day, what does football boil down to? The raw emotion, how it makes you feel, and that's the reason why we keep going, that's the reason why we're still doing little projects like this, and at the end of the day, it just shows how important football is for specific reasons, and those reasons aren't necessarily winning or these sort of history-defining moments. They're, they're the ones that you share that are personal to you with your friends and family at the end of the day, and everybody's recollection of that is different. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because I've, I've never really sat down and thought about what Stoke means to me and my early memories of Stoke and stuff like that. Mm. I think as football fans, we, we often just think about the present, don't we? Mm. So I've really enjoyed doing this today because it's, it's given me a chance to actually reflect a little bit about my time following Stoke and, yeah. and recall some of the memories and stuff. I, I, I really enjoyed it. Well, I'll tell you what then. One question before I move on to absolutely the last one, I promise. I know this is a long podcast, but hang in there, guys. Um, <laughs> from your perspective, given how much you've learned about Stoke City objectively and everything you've learned about Stoke City subjectively, what does Stoke City mean to you? Um, what a question. It's just home. I guess is the one word I use to describe it. Yeah, it's such a, a huge part of my life. Even before I started doing, you know, the, the, the history-based stuff and PhD, mm. it's been such a, a major part of, of my life. You know, something I've shared with my dad and my friends, and I'll always look forward to every Saturday, mm. regardless if we're winning or losing or whatever division we're in or whatever awful stadium we might end up playing in. <laughs> I always look forward to Saturday. Yeah, you know, Stoke is, is home to me, and it mean, means an awful lot. Yeah, and, and and I can tell that not only with the way that you spoke today, but with everything that you do outside of this as well. Like you've dedicated yourself to it, and and I think home is a really nice way of putting it. Actually, yeah, for a lot of people, it really is just home. That leads us on to the final question, then. So, Martin, I'd like you to describe your Stoke City story in three words for the title, please, mate. So uh, this is. <laughs> I'm not really sure what to go with. <laughs> I've just gone with the scoreboard's wrong. The scoreboard's wrong. And in reference to the to the Liverpool defeat when we lost eight 0 and the uh, and the scoreboard showed nine 0 at one stage incorrectly. 
I think now that sort of period of my life was so important. That's when I found love with Stoke. And, yeah. You know, I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for those, like, those first three years. So. That's brilliant. I love that one. A little personal moment. Just sort of sewn in there with a bit of comedy. I like it. <laughs> Beautiful. And with that, I think that has closed file 29 of the Wow 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 files. Firstly, thank you ever so much, Martin, honestly, for coming on and sharing such a really interesting Stoke story. Not only have you got the perspective of being a fan, but you've also got that of being a historian, a Stoke City historian, I guess, almost as professional as it gets in that regard. And I, I, <laughs> I've learned so much about Stoke. Yeah, I, I think it's been really great. I hope that we see more of your work, whether it's here or elsewhere in the Stoke community, because I think it's really good. I think it's really interesting. I hope you continue with what you're doing. And I'm sure you will, because I can tell how much the club means to you and I'm sure it will continue to mean to you in the future as well. So, yeah, honestly, thank you ever so much for giving up your valuable time and uh, sharing your story with us, mate. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. I appreciate the chance. Thank you so much. And then, just a reminder to everybody listening that the show relies on people like Martin to share your story as well. You don't have to be (laughs) a historian doing a PhD into Stoke City's history to come on this podcast. You can come on and talk about whatever you want, you know. We've we've had all sorts of fans on here and I'll accept anybody. I I really will because I genuinely believe that everybody's got a story worth sharing. You might not think it is. I mean, (laughs) Martin, when he first emailed me, actually said that he was a bit tentative about getting involved because he wasn't sure he had such an interesting story. I'll leave you to decide whether you disagree with that. And if you say that about yourself, then send me an email. If you're really unsure, just send me an email and I'll decide whether I think your Stoke City story is interesting or not. Because I really think they all are. So if you want to appear on the YYY Files like Martin and create your file, head to the website at theyyyfiles.com. You can send me an email or contact me on social media, any any way like that. If you're a bit nervous about coming on because it's your first podcast, I completely understand Martin again said exactly the same he said like he's never done a podcast before and he was a bit nervous like again you were the judge I don't think you'd have known a difference to be honest I think he's he's spoken about Stoke City ever so well and I think often people come on this podcast for the first time and they talk better than I do and I host a bloody thing I honestly rely on you guys so much to make this happen and if you really do like it then then please help sort of contribute to whatever the hell this is but I can understand if you don't want to come on if you enjoy the file and you just want to hear more subscribe on your favourite podcast platform go back and listen to the previous files if you haven't already the Stoke City Hero series is out and running as well but most importantly tell your friends about the show honestly in this period of uncertainty and isolation and possibly loneliness and poor mental health it, it might actually do somebody really good to share something new with somebody as I say you never know what happens through you sharing this podcast with somebody like I can tell you for a fact that some people that have been on this podcast wouldn't have done so if someone hadn't shared it with them in the first place they wouldn't have found it themselves we talked about the butterfly effect here like you you never really know how these things develop if you tell one person they'll tell the next they'll tell the next and if you like it I'd really appreciate it if you shared it around and got more people involved like I, I completely understand if people don't like the format I completely appreciate it. it's not for everybody but it's not about the numbers for me in terms of listens it's about the numbers in terms of I want more people to interview and for that as a byproduct I, I need more people to know about this project in the first place I don't know every Stoke fan I can't approach every Stoke fan that's out there so I need your help as well 
So please come and find us on the social medias at the YYY Files or send an email to the YYY Files at mail.com. Again, I'll, I'll leave all the links, mine and to Martin's, in the podcast description. That just needed to say one more time. Thank you, Martin. Thank you, Ben. Thank you very much for listening. Until the next one. But don't forget, it could be your file one day. Please, I need to support you all. Pants of mine